I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Stripe tap to pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Raymond Luxury Yacht, oh, sorry, it's spelled Luxury Yacht, I believe it's pronounced Throat Wobbler Mangrove, has supported independent tech news directly for five years. Be like Raymond. Become a DTNS member at patreon.com slash DTNS. This is the Daily Tech News for Friday, May 10th, 2019 in Los Angeles. I'm Tom Merritt. And from Studio Feline, I'm Sarah Lane. And I'm the show's producer, Roger Chang. Joining us, the host of TechThing.com and AVXL, Mr. Patrick Norton, back on the show. Welcome back, Patrick. Happy to be here. I am going to look for, I am looking forward. I'm not even going to. I'm already looking forward uh, to you telling us why a new $3,000 laptop doesn't perform as well as my two-year-old laptop. I brought props. Nice. <laughs> we will get That's to that. An to watch the video version. Well, it's, uh, it's nice. Yeah. Uh, we will get to that in a few moments, but let's start with a few tech things you should know. Following on antitrust investigations in Europe and Russia, sources tell Reuters that the Competition Commission of India has ordered an investigation of whether or not Google abused its dominant position for Android in the Indian market. The investigation began after a complaint that Google blocked Android competitors But it's unknown who filed the complaints. Chinese e-commerce company JD reported its revenues grew 21% in Q1, which might sound good to you at first, but it's their slowest pace on record. Chinese companies are starting to reach a saturation point domestically and needing to find new markets to expand into. But JD in particular is also feeling pressure from several high-level staff departures and a lawsuit from a University of Minnesota student alleging rape against JD's CEO. (sighs) Google has rolled out the podcast-focused search results that it announced at Google I.O. Searching for a podcast now shows three most recent episodes, which can be played through a web player at podcast.google.com. Users signed in with a Google account can sync playback through the Google Podcast app. And it works with Daily Tech News Show. I checked. Google announced that all Chromebooks launched this year, Intel or ARM, will be Linux-ready out of the box. Now, yes, Chrome OS is, in fact, built around the Linux kernel, but what they mean by this is you'll be able to run Debian from Terminal. Type in Terminal, you're running Debian. And with a few shell commands, you can do Ubuntu or Fedora as well. The Linux OS runs alongside the Chrome OS in these situations, meaning you can move your files between them. Fascinating. All right, let's talk a little more about the biggest news in tech stocks this year, uh, or for a while, actually. 
Yeah, this is a big one. Uber began trading stock on the New York Stock Exchange Friday under the ticker symbol Uber. The stock was issued at $45 per share, the low end of expectations. The stock finished at $41.55. Lyft stock, which, you know, is Uber's biggest competitor, has fallen more than 25% since its IPO in late March. Both Lyft and Uber tell investors that 2019 is their year of peak losses. Great year. That means the prices got to rise soon, right? As ridership is reaching a plateau. 85% of people in the U.S. use ride-hailing services rarely or never. Meanwhile, a study last year found that services, the services we're talking about at least, add 2.6 new vehicle miles for each mile that they lose. Last year, 24% of Uber's bookings came from Sao Paulo, London, New York, L.A., and San Francisco. Yeah, this changes everything, folks. Now that the ride-hailing companies, the, the two big ones in the U.S. anyway, and, uh, uh, and and there are more around the world, we, we understand this, but the pressure is on for these companies to start making money. Uh, and, and it doesn't mean they have to turn a profit this year, but when they say peak losses this year, that means... Don't worry, investors. This is the worst it's going to get. We'll we'll re- start reducing those losses pretty soon, and then we will eventually be profitable. But to do that, they need to have more people writing. 85% of the people in the U.S. not very, very often writing a service like this isn't good when you're going to have to face a price rise if you want to reach profitability. And the question, Sarah, I think is, can they survive into a more efficient system that is promised who knows when down the road, like driverless cars. Yeah, and and both Uber and Lyft have have been public about their plans to be part of that revolution, but they've got a lot of competition. And you know, we, when you say eighty five percent of folks aren't using ride hailing services, I was also talking to an Uber driver when I was in San Francisco last week who lives in Sacramento, California, comes mm-hmm. to San Francisco for like five days a month to make a bunch of money. And I said, well, why do you do that? Don't people like Uber in Sacramento? And he said, well, the drivers don't because there's everyone's going downtown, but they live way out. And so you end up wasting a lot of gas because you're not getting fares coming back in. Certain cities just aren't set up for growth for either of these companies. So that's where Uber and Lyft, which is, I mean, the stock has taken quite a hit uh, over what, two months. So that's, you know, you're kind of like, all right, well, this is the, this is the model until we all go driverless. Let's call (laughs) it 10 years from now. Yeah. What, what, what do these stock prices look like in five years? It's amazing how disruptive you can be when you're spending somebody else's money against people that don't have somebody else's money to spend. I mean, the, uh, the idea was, you know, we're going to we're going to lose money to gain ridership. And then once we get that ridership, we'll have people addicted. And then, you know, we can do what Netflix and Hulu and all those companies are doing right and start to slowly raise prices because uh, everybody will rely on it. But there's a question of whether enough people are relying on this and cities are actively it's not even just about taxi drivers being upset or, or licensing right. problems. I mean, Derek Rashahi, let's give him credit, has done a great job of making Uber a better citizen with cities. But if you're adding 2.6 new vehicle miles for each mile you remove by giving someone a ride, you're making congestion worse. And that's going to make it hard for cities to want to com- uh, cooperate with you. Yeah. Well, we'll see, we'll see if uh, scooters and public transit uh, instructions, which is kind of their two big things that they're adding, will will help with that. Microsoft Corporate Vice President Kevin Gallo wrote in a blog post this week: "You've told us that you would like us to continue to decouple many parts of the universal Windows platform so that you can adopt them incrementally. In other words, 
Microsoft is no longer trying to force developers into UWP. Uh, they don't have the phone anymore, which was kind of the big promise of UWP because you could write an app once and it would work on whatever device. They still have HoloLens. They still have the Xbox. But Gallo told Mary Jo Foley of ZDNet, by the time we are done, everything will just be called Windows apps. Doesn't matter if it's Win32 or UWP or whatever. And don't get them wrong. Microsoft's not taking away UWP. Microsoft wants to make all developer features available to all the Windows frameworks. Gallo also said apps do not need to be in the store anymore. That was a point of contention for a while. And Paul Therott at Therott.com points out, this effectively means UWP as the one platform for all Windows apps is dead. Mm-hmm. So... I, I don't, it doesn't... I don't know. It's, it, yeah, I, I feel bad for developers. Feel, but, you feel bad for developers? This is giving the developers what they want. Yes. I mean, I, I feel bad for developers who tried so hard to make UWP work mm. and committed to products that were only available in sure, the Microsoft sure. Store, yeah. which many of us avoided assiduously. But I, you know, I can also remember having a moment where I couldn't run the UDP version of Skype from the store, but I could run. You know what I mean? It was just, you know, if Microsoft with all of their development effort could have issues having, you know, UWP apps function as well as standalone apps. What chance does a small shop or a smaller developer have? I mean, I mean, the, the, I, the nice thing about this is Microsoft is taking a developer friendly tack finally. Right. But yeah, you're right. right. It sucks that people either had to deal with this problem by not doing it and, and facing resistance from Microsoft or pouring right. a lot of effort into doing it and now have Microsoft not pull the rug out from under them. Their UWP apps will still work, but feeling like, well, maybe I didn't have to spend all that time. On yeah, it. the wording of it also is, yeah, it's very much like you asked for it and we're delivering because we're Microsoft and we care. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think it's not wrong. No. I mean, it's but it's, you know, it's, it's that that is purposeful language. I will add the one area that I will personally be affected is in the Xbox One homebrew community who was who were using UWP as a way to build essentially custom applications. And they'll still be uh, able to. The, That's not going away. It's not gonna hurt that. Right. They're not taking UWP away. Let's be let's be very clear about that. They're just saying you don't have to use it anymore. Hmm. Earlier this week, add-ons for Firefox broke because of expired signing certificates. Mozilla CTO Eric Rescorla has posted a detailed explanation of how this happened, when they noticed it, and why it took as long as it did to fix it. The expired cert was noticed at 6 p.m. Pacific last Friday. A fix was shipped at 2.44 a.m., so just shy of nine hours later. Part of the reason it took so long was security. Rescorla notes that Mozilla's own security protocols are good practice, but somewhat inconvenient if you want to issue a new certificate on an emergency basis. Rescorla talks about ways to prevent this from happening in the future, including better tracking of time-sensitive issues and better ways to securely push urgent updates. Patrick, I hear you laughing already. A full postmortem will be issued next week. I'm just thinking of the number of times like certificates have gone out or there've been a couple major websites where they've forgotten to pay or, or nobody actually knew who had signed up for the original <laughs> right. URL. Where, where'd the, the renewal email was. go? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I had a conversation with somebody about that at a large organization I used to work for a few years ago and they're like, well, at some point we really need to figure out how to pay for this uh, or just keep praying that the credit card keeps renewing each year. And I just remember being like, that's, 
Yeah. That's kind of big. Um, yeah. I mean, you know. that that is the problem. It's like, how did the certificate not get renewed? And he acknowledges that in this post. But if you get past that, this is a really fascinating post about, hey, folks, things aren't as easy as it looks. I know your add-ons didn't yeah. work and we should have renewed the certificate, but he, he very much explains why it took nine hours and I think makes a pretty good case why it had to take nine hours if you want to do it right. Uh, and pointed out like we were following our own security protocols and the better thing to do is not skimp on security protocols just because right. you want to get something done faster, especially when you're dealing with a security certificate. So no, no, you know. no, no, no. When people are in a hurry, you should just blow by all <laughs> yeah, of the security yeah. protocols and all those checks and balances and all those laws and safety equipment. It'll yeah. all work out the way it's meant to. So I, I think... <laughs> This is this is great as a, as an insight into the process for people who don't realize like oh fixing this kind of stuff takes a long time and, and there's good right. reasons why it takes a long time and he's very transparent about what they did. It also uh, doesn't try to let themselves off the hook that like yeah we should have never been in this problem in the first place we and we're right. going to work on that we're going to make sure well, we have better tracking on our certificates and and I, and I hope they do I hope they figure all that stuff out. Is anybody other than me just delighted when when manufacturers or vendors or, or developers are actually like, we screwed up massively and we're really sorry about that? Is that just refreshing or is it just me? I, I think what's most refreshing Depends about on, this yeah. is the detail, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just, oh, sorry. It's like, all right, let me explain what happened. Right. You know? I think right, it's, that's it, what I meant. It's, yeah, it's so yeah. refreshing because totally. so many companies don't do that well enough, right. you know, where it's sort of like, all right, well, the problem went away, you know, and everyone's like, but we're still outraged. <laughs> hey, we're really we sorry, but apologies. it's all fixed now. Can you all go away? Thanks. Where's our yes. catharsis? <laughs> right, right. No, I think Mozilla's doing a good job of giving you catharsis without without saying, you, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. I think they're, they're owning right. up to it. Ars Technica's Ron Amadeo writes today that the nest we knew is dead. So many things dying. Well, UWP isn't dying, but... Uh, <laughs> There are definitely parts of Nest that are dying. Although Nest hasn't been an independent company since last year at Google I.O., this week Google Nest became the official rebrand. We talked about that on Tuesday. Uh, it, that means it's a Google smart home product. Uh, so like the Google Nest Protect, the Google Nest Secure Alarm System, Google Nest Hello. Chromecast didn't get rebranded yet. That'll be interesting. The Google Nest Cast, possibly. <laughs> anyway, a notice on Nest.com itself reads that works with Nest is winding down. Now, we mentioned this on Tuesday, uh, but we've had a few days to kind of wrap our heads around what this means. Uh, Nest uh, Works with Nest was the smart home platform that let your Nest thermostat or your drop cam or whatever uh, work with a lot of other smart home products, usually using the thermostat as the hub. Now, strategy will focus on the Works with Google Assistant program, which, as we noted Tuesday, has some more restrictions uh, on how it uses data and what it can do, which is good. But the other side of this is that Nest's ecosystem is shutting down on August 31st, and The Verge right. notes that's going to affect Amazon, Philips Hue, IFT, Logitech Harmony, Lutron Lights, August Home, and Wemo switches, among others. Apparently, Google is working with Amazon to migrate the Nest skill to the Google Home, Google Assistant platform. So that may not end up being a problem, but all of these others will. This is, I mean, I had a friend of mine who, um, I can't say that word, this is a family-friendly podcast, who lost his collective stuff 
uh, earlier this year because uh, Iris shut down and he had thousands of dollars of hardware and time invested in the, you know, the Iris, which was Lowe's competitor to mm-hmm. Home Depot's home automation system that I can't even remember the name of. There's this like 18 month span where they seem to kind of own the future before Google and Amazon stepped in. And, you know, we're seeing more and more of this where people have heavily invested in an ecosystem and it gets wiped out. And, it, you know, the, the thing of, you know, we we're thinking about on tech thing this week is like this whole relationship between Google and Nest has been kind of a a hot mess. Um, you know, and you know, and, well, and it was also- spun out as an Alphabet company, which made perfect sense to me. Uh, right. Alphabet saying like, let's have a separate hardware company that can do other things. Uh, but then, you know, some people say it was because of the management. Other people say it was cold feet. They brought it back in under Google, and now it's just a product line under Google's hardware division. And barely. <laughs> yeah. And well, it's it's gone. I mean, Nest itself yeah, I mean, is gone. Yeah. Th- this is essentially a zombie brand that mm-hmm. happens to have been fairly functional until, you know, it's not like the Polaroid television, you know, your dad picked up while he was at Walmart. But this is essentially they're, they're the just Nest turning name has some good brand familiar. recognition out there. So they want to keep using yeah. it on their Google products. Exactly. Uh, but I, you know, I imagine there will be more migration paths for some of these brands than it looks like right now, uh, that there will be other ways to maybe even use Google Assistant uh, to route through stuff to Ift and then get it back into your system. But it's going to require work no matter what. It's going to require people to do things like migrate accounts. Nest is going to require or at least highly encourage people to change their Nest accounts to Google accounts. And a lot of people aren't going to want to do that. Uh, which means they're left with a zombie account that Google isn't saying they're going to shut down now, but it's not going to get any feature updates. It's only going to get security updates. So I don't know. I'm kind of down with people moving off the Nest uh, ecosystem in some ways, because or the, or the Nest sort of back end mm-hmm. because they had security issues. I'm also laughing because I'm I'm looking at killedbygoogle.com and and like waiting for Nest <laughs> to pop up here, which probably isn't going to happen until August 31st. Probably August but if you've 31st. Never been killed yeah. by Google.com go there it's uh gives you some real pause before you invest a lot in any hardware system owned by google and gadget reports that lyft is experimenting with longer term car rentals to a test of customers in san francisco lyft confirmed the program and said we're currently testing a small scale rental option for long distance trips like a weekend away testers will pay about $60 a day for a standard sedan and around $100 a day for an SUV. Renters will be able to claim up to $20 in Lyft credit for a ride to a Lyft rental car lot, which at least right now is based in San Francisco's Mission District from wherever they are at the time. I find this pricey. Roger and I were kind of trying, going around earlier to try to decide if with fees and stuff, is this really pricey? Roger, I know you think it's, it's, it's a fair amount. I still think it's kind of high. Uh, right now, $100 you, a day. If you That's go look for an SUV, for an SUV right SUV. now on Travelocity, you can get it for $66 a day with the fees and stuff. That's probably yeah. more like 75, but, uh, in San Francisco. Yeah. In San Francisco. Yeah. Right Aren't they now. running a 19% saving charging back the, uh, well, it depends on where you rent it. I well, guess, but it, my question was like, that's an all in price, right? Once you pay that, mm-hmm. you're not paying additional taxes. You're, right. you're right. not paying additional you're not paying insurance. airport fee. Any of that, that stuff, yeah. to me, I mean, even if it was 15 or $20 differential per day, it's still, I mean, if you're only going to use the car a few days, I would totally go for it because you don't need to worry about the rest of it. You don't have to worry about getting your car back to Enterprise or whomever. And once you drop it off, you just take a lift back to the airport. And they're giving you credits for that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So well, it, and now they're competing with people like me who use get around to rent out our cars. Upstanding <laughs> citizens who just want to make a buck when they don't drive for days on end because they work from home. So thanks a lot, Lyft. I know this is just a test in San Francisco, but if it's if it's successful, it's you know it's gonna it's gonna creep outward. Well, and I'm sure the get around prices are lower than this, right? I, I assume they are. Uh, yeah. Well, you can set your price. Yeah. So, so for so my you, car, I could say you pay me a hundred dollars a day. My car is technically an SUV. But, yeah. You could say ninety five and then undercut. Yeah. Left, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a whole sort of system of you know you kind of want to just like undercut the other person who has the same model car mm-hmm. as you. But again, if you know when you're if you if you are a faithful Lyft user and they they've got this option and you're like oh I want to go to wine country for the weekend let's just use Lyft we already use Lyft well they're they're going to do well then. Yeah, and you wouldn't have to pay for a lift out to the airport. You wouldn't have to deal with the airport at all. That's right. a, that's a nice convenience. I still think it's a little pricey, but maybe it's not that bad. All in, you, you guys have started to convince me. <laughs> uh, folks, if you want to get all the tech headlines each day in about five minutes, be sure to subscribe to DailyTechHeadlines.com. Uh, Patrick recently did a review of the IdeaPad S940, and I know Patrick, uh, it got you thinking. Why a laptop like that, which costs around $3,000 and has a faster CPU, got beat in your performance tests by a laptop with an older, slower processor? Yeah, this has been interesting for me. Uh, a, a friend of mine bought a $3,000 laptop about, I don't know, a year ago, 18 months ago. Uh, it was passively cooled, i.e. there was no fans inside of it. And the idea that he was going to have this magnificent Core i7, high power, extraordinarily in it. He had a one terabyte hard drive. He had, you know, 32 gigabytes of memory. It was just, it was maxed out. And he put it next to his, his existing computer, you know, and starts transferring things and start using it. And even in day-to-day use, it was miserable as in imagine, you know, it, like remember when you went home and you used your dad's computer and he hadn't updated it in like five years before you yes, left home, you left totally. home five years ago uh-huh. and he uses it for checkers on Yahoo. So he doesn't really notice anything, but you try to launch it to a web page and it takes three days. Um, it was not quite that bad using this brand new $3,000 laptop, but it was astonishingly bad in day to day, like opening browser. Like literally there were moments where there were like, 15 browser windows or 15 browser tabs open and type was lagging as you tried to type into a document. Um, if you actually try to do any real work, I just remember being blown away because this brand new Core i7 system side by side with a two-year-old Core i5 laptop that cost half as much new, uh, the Core i5 laptop, this Dell XPS 13, was absolutely smoking it. And we started to realize, uh, as we started using some tools to look at, we started to realize that, you know, the the laptop was quickly becoming thermally saturated. Uh, and what happens is, if this is a good thing for the most part, right? Back in the day, you could manage to generate so much heat on your processor that you could literally fry your processor. Uh, Roger and I could tell you stories. Tom would point and laugh and join in, except that he probably already adequately, always adequately cooled his processors. But it gets really frustrating because laptops are designed, especially as they get thinner and thinner and thinner, there, there's a... You know, there's this idea of a TDP or thermal design power, and most laptops are like 15 watt, 45 watt, or 90 watt. 90 watts are the big like lunch tray size gaming laptops. An XPS 13, the S940, most of the ultra portables, they're probably running like a 15 watt TDP, which means all of the computing power uh, has to basically fit inside of that 15 watt space. And in theory, you know, processors may go up to 150% of TDP in some situations, but fundamentally 
how well your processor performs is directly related to how good a job your hardware does cooling it. And, you know, I was, I was teasing Tom, like I have props, but you know, this is a very small, like 37 millimeter knock to a cooler that's designed for low profile cases. Like, you know, I have this very cool case. It's very small and this is going to go inside of it. This is, you know, by the time you get to a 95-watt desktop processor, this is maxed out. And it's probably, if you're doing things that generate a ton of heat, like you're rendering video, you're using all eight cores of your, of your you know, your, your processor, um, that tends to saturate the device. Like heat kind of builds up, and then the st- you know, first the processor gets hot, then the cooler gets hot, then the area around the case gets hot, then everything inside the case gets hot, which is why you would use, you know, a bigger cooler. And a bigger cooler is, guess what, going to pull more heat away. But you can't fit a bigger cooling system inside of a laptop. So it gets really interesting when you start looking at roughly the same processor in two different laptops. And you find out the performance can be astonishingly different off of parts that are technically the same. Well, mm-hmm. the parts are the same, but you, you, you're you either going to enable them or, or hinder their performance by how well a job you do cooling them. Because if things get too hot the the clock speed turns down and if they don't cool off enough then the clock speed turns down some more and then the clock speed turns down some more and then eventually you're looking at spending all day waiting for something to happen is that something um, the processor does on its own as self-defense yes. yeah yeah the the processor it, i mean it's really amazing uh you know, because that also allows things to happen like, okay, you know, they will max out the threads. Um, you know, it also makes it, there's, there's a lot of really cool stuff in the way thermal management's going on right now with CPUs, especially some of the, the really late, the, some of the stuff going on with the Ryzen processors where they're literally measuring temperatures, you know, taking thermals all over the chip and adjusting things on the fly to try to figure out how to keep everything running to kind of balance out making everything run as fast as possible. But yeah, literally what happens, you know, the processor gets to a certain temperature and it's like, "Uh oh, no, 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 no. And then it, you know, turns down the clock speed and that should drop the amount of heat being generated. And then it'll try to turn it up and, you know, it'll eventually, you know, if you add more cooling, then it'll be able to run maxed out at the highest possible, you know, uh, CPU speed. But if you don't have enough cooling, it slows down. And we've been noticing this a lot, uh, me and some of the guys at PC per and a couple other places where we're looking at devices and being like, this is awesome. Oh my goodness! Uh, this is really bad for certain workloads. It's so quiet, and it got real slow because, <laughs> I mean, is it is it that these quiet cooling systems, these fanless cooling systems, just aren't capable of that, or is it vary by implementation? It varies a lot by implementation. Um, you know, I, I will say flat out period physics, uh, you know, is a hard wall. Mm. And when you get as you as things get thinner and thinner and thinner and you have less space inside the enclosure to work with, moving the heat off of the processor and getting it outside of the laptop, gets harder and harder. Um, you know, we've also seen things like. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, for example, in the case of this idea pad, like I wouldn't be surprised if they made some tweaks to it to make the fan louder, basically to make the fan run faster, which you hear as being louder, but will also make it more effective at removing heat from the processor. Mm-hmm. Um, they change from generation to generation. There's some crazy stuff that, that Dell did with, with the materials they used um, to sort of isolate the heat inside the laptop and make it move out. But mostly it comes down to figuring out how to move more air. Like one of the biggest things, you know, a thousand years ago on desktops is they figured out like, oh, smaller fans running faster move the same amount of air as larger fans moving slower, but larger fans moving slower make a lot less noise. And it's, uh, 
it's something to look at. I will also uh, I will also point out that in terms of everyday computing, you know, it's only a rare edge case where somebody has really done a piss poor job of matching the thermals to the processor where you run into noticeable things um, where it starts becoming really noticeable is if you are like rendering video, doing a bunch of processing in Photoshop or doing some kind of crazy, uh, you know, if you're a programmer and you're compiling giant amounts of code where you max out the processor and leave it there for a long time. The matter Most people a, a hot room. Don't do that. It doesn't help. <laughs> no, I know it doesn't help. I'm just wondering how much of an effect that really has. Cause I, I think, I think that could be exaggerated maybe. I think it can be exaggerated a lot, but you know, it also depends on a hot room near the equator or a hot room in Cleveland. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Arizona, Amazon, or yeah, Cleveland, Toronto, <laughs> Moosehead, Moose Jaw, something like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Patrick. And, and of course, if you want to find that review, uh, where should they go? Uh, T-E-K-T-H-I-N-G dot com tech thing. You know who else is hot? In fact, they're on fire. All the Ooh. people who participate in our subreddit. You can submit stories and vote on others at dailytechnewsshow.reddit.com. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash groups slash dailytechnewsshow. The sub, the sub, the sub is on fire. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should just check the mailbag. Uh, let's do it. Anthony, who's a licensed real estate agent, he says, for about five years in the state of Vermont, wrote in about our discussion on Redfin Direct. That was in yesterday's show. And some of our questions about how this could affect the real estate market going forward. One of Anthony's thoughts, and thank you for the long, thoughtful email, Anthony, was, I wonder how Redfin is going to handle a lot of the legalities of real estate. In my state, mm. you have to have a license to deal in real estate. One of the prerequisite prerequisites is that you can you need to sit under somebody for two years and complete eight transactions. I wonder how Redfin is going to handle that. What I really wonder is how they're going to navigate the laws and nuances of all 50 states. Every state is different. They're going to need an army of lawyers to make this work nationwide. Well, uh, the good news for Redfin is they already they already do this. They already sell houses. They have agents. You can actually get agents through Redfin. So I imagine they're covered for most of these concerns just under the, the stuff, the work that they had to do to have agents in various markets. Uh, but it's a good question because they, they do need uh, to have uh, different compliance uh for different states and they are trying to to work in as many states as possible so uh it's a very good question anthony thank you for that thank you anthony and also thanks to patrick norton for being with us on this wonderful friday patrick where can people find all the great stuff you do well, techthing.com or avxl.com. AVXL is the podcast I host with Robert Heron. We talk about audio and video and home theater and speakers and screens and stuff. And of course, Tech Thing is the podcast I host with uh, Shannon Morse. There has never been a better time to be a DTNS member because live with it. The first episode is out. Uh, Sarah told us all about her three months living with the Jabra 65T Elite headphones or earbuds. Uh, and it's in your Patreon feed right now if you haven't noticed it go i got look. it yeah uh it's good stuff and we're doing the vote right now we're probably going to wrap it up today on what the one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why united healthcare offers a variety of flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more so whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
the Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Stripe Tap to Pay on iPhone came along and changed everything. With Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. No more juggling different methods. Just a simple tap on my iPhone and transactions are complete. What's truly remarkable is how Stripe caters to all my customers' preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Stripe ensures a smooth checkout experience every time. Setting up Stripe was a breeze, taking just minutes to get up and running. From local markets to global retailers, Stripe helped me expand my reach and grow my business with ease. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Next product should be that's a little farther back. I, I think back on May 7th in your Patreon feed. Uh, but if you're like, oh, wait, I don't get any of that. I'm not a Patreon. You can fix that real easy. Just head to patreon.com slash DTNS. <laughs> and if you have feedback for us, we'd love to read them. Our email address is feedback at dailytechnewsshow.com. Or if you see me on the street, just tell me in person. But that's probably the better way to do it. <laughs> We're live Monday through Friday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, 2030 UTC. You can find out more and tell a friend at dailytechnewsshow.com slash live. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you Monday. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> 